Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmain.com. All right, so uh, Romans uh, chapter 8, um, we, have gone, we have blazed through three weeks. We got through the first seven chapters. We've been going fast. I know it's been a lot, you know, and I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground um, I know that it's, it's been kind of chaotic, but as I said at the beginning, one of my goals is to, is to break down Scripture in front of you so that um, it would potentially resource you and equip you to study the Word on your own um, and in your alone times and get you hungry for what's available in that. Um, Romans chapter 4, we've been start- I'm going to give you a quick review since we had a week off. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Um, in, and uh, one of the things that we've been sharing every single week is that the capstone, the key verse that sets the tones for the entire book and purpose of Romans is Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek for, in, uh, for in, the, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul presents to us in this verse, he goes, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us. That it, is, it carries transformative power to change who you are and transform you. And, 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 it, and it is entered into, and that transformational power is entered into by faith. And, uh, and we're going to get into it because what Jesus did on the cross justified you. And it imparted his righteousness into you. And as it was imparted into you, it is changing you from the inside out. Until that your external behaviors begins to reflect what's been accomplished internally inside of you. Correct? I mean, no matter what you do on the outside of you, the righteousness of Jesus Christ still is going on in the inside of you. But if it's going on in the inside of you, then there is a practical steps to allowing what's going on inside of you to begin to change what begins to happen outside of you. And, uh, and so Paul begins to break this down, chapters three to five. Um, he, he begins to talk about how righteousness is not imparted through works, but faith. And faith produces a lifestyle um, of behavior that is righteous. And he begins to break down, how does what's been done inside of me begin to become what's going on outside of me? And he goes, well, let's look at the life of Abraham. Abraham didn't have the law, so he could not perform the works of the law, yet his faith was accredited to him as righteousness. How is that possible? And he goes, well, when you looked at the promise of God was given to Abraham, and Abraham was promised a son, that he would become the father of many nations through that son, he, he realized that um, he's too old, his wife's womb is dead, and that he was literally staring into the face of impossibility concerning the promises of God for his life. But it says, but even still, he had against all hope, Abraham had hope, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Why? Because it says, because Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but it says, but he was persuaded that God was able to do what he said he was going to do. And that is where it was accredited to him as righteousness. Why? Because God said a thing, God promised a thing. And actually what Abraham did was he took all of 
uh, all, of, all of those promises and he brought it towards all of those unbeliefs inside of him and he persuaded all the lies and unbeliefs to agree with God's promises. And he allowed that promise to do an internal work inside of him until he believed and by believing he became the father of many nations. I, I break it down like this. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is a substance of things that you hope for, the evidence of things you do not see. Uh, that means that faith is a substance, which mean, means faith is the measurable response to what we hope for. Hope is an internal reality of what we believe about God. You know, we say, I, I believe that God heals the sick, but when sickness comes up, I don't pray for it, Right. I don't lay hands on the sick, although I do preach that I believe in healing the sick. Why? Because I'm not applying faith to my beliefs. Because do you hear what I'm saying? Faith is an active response to what we believe to be true. So if we believe a thing, then we have to respond to what we believe. If you believe that God heals the sick, don't just tell me, go lay hands on the sick. Your faith is a substance of things that you hope for, and it's the evidence of things that don't see. I preach God's a healer, but I got nobody getting healed why? Probably because I'm not applying faith to what I believe, so therefore I'm not bringing evidence to the unseen world that I'm preaching. Does this make sense? And so if, if God is, you know, if, if you believe God is good and there's inner turmoil and anxiety and conflict inside of you, you need to begin to get persuaded that God is good and bring all anxiety and fear to the Lord. And this becomes an internal wrestling and persuasion going on, on the inside of you that begins to actually take all that God says that he is and it becomes active response externally. And now the righteousness that's in part of you now becomes righteous behavior outside of you. This is making sense to you. I hope I'm not just making it more complicated. So Roman, in, in uh, Romans chapter three to five, he begins to break down and he, he, he says this in Romans chapter, chapter five, verse uh, uh, three and four, he says, so therefore tribulations produces per- perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Uh, and, and, and he says, because all these external things are causing chaos and anxiety and conflict inside of them, we, we love them because it, it creates perseverance and cur- perseverance is going deep inside of you to become hope that then becomes faith externally from you. And so, uh, so this is why we get excited about these opportunities. I, I, I tell our church all the time, like, I love it when chaos is going on and conflict in people's life. People come all like weary and broken down. And I'm like, this is awesome because I know what God is able to do inside of you in a moment of conflict when, when all of our lies are being confronted and all of our fears and anxieties are being confronted. I know this is a divine opportunity to actually create a lifestyle of faith that responds to what we believe right now. And this is what changes you and what transforms your life. Uh, in chapter six and seven, he begins to set the stage for chapter eight, and truly, six and seven are all setting the stage. And he breaks down and he, he says, um, Paul begins to explain the transformation of the gospel by confronting misconceptions of salvation. And he uses three examples. Number one, he uses death. Death is final, meaning the cross reckoned us dead to sin. The cross did not just suppress our sinful nature, it killed our sinful nature. I mean, it's no death is available through the cross. 
that you can put to death the deeds of the body that are sinful. It is available. It is not just a band-aid until you get to heaven. The cross reckoned you dead to sin. He then uses slavery as an example. Who do you obey? Paul presents the power of our choices. Who you obey is who you serve. And, uh, and, he, and, and, and he brings up the very point of like, listen, whoever you start to obey is who you're going to become. It's going to become your master. Uh, so if you're entertaining sin in your life and not actually bringing it through the process, that thing will enslave you. It's not just there to hang out as an annoying little brother in the corner. This thing wants to enslave you and become your master. Uh, the only end to sin is more sin and it will never become satisfied. This thing wants to control your life. So he goes, listen, who do you want to be your master? Do you want righteousness or sin to be your master? Serve the Lord and choose him today, Right? And then lastly, he says this about marriage. And he, and he says, who do you love? Do you love sin or do you love God? Who you love is who you will live for. You know, I, I, one of the things I say to people all the time is that if you want to break an addiction, find a better one. The reality is, is that your flesh and your soul wants to be addicted to something. And friends, it was created to be addicted to the presence of God. And uh, in, in nothing that you do, no amount of, of boundaries will set you free from the longings of the flesh. You need to satisfy the longing of the heart, which is the longing for the presence of God to be with who you were created to be with. Who do you love? Uh, if, if we have a moral problem, we may have a love problem. That we, we don't just need to um, hate sin. We need to fall in love with the presence of the Lord and get wild about the presence of Jesus. Somebody needs to start a, uh, like a, a, a sexual addiction, like free course in class. And it's less about boundaries. And it's more about getting just lost in the beauty of Jesus and getting captivated by his presence and giving your soul to, to that longing. Uh, instead of anything else, and watch all the shackles fall off of your life. But this is where he ends in Romans 7 that sets the stage for Romans chapter 8. And um, I, I'm reading this from the Passion Translation because this is the famous passage. Why is it that I do what I don't want to do? And why is it that what I don't want to do is the very thing that I do? And you, you remember the really confusing, like this back and forth, and you're like, this guy's got a problem. Right? It's so confusing. And... Um, we love to quote this passage as like an excuse for like, well, Paul even said it. Why is it that I do what I don't want to do? Well, that's what I do, you know? And we use this as an excuse uh, many times for our lifestyle. But I want to read it from the Passion because it's setting the stage for Romans 7.15. And he says uh, in verse 15, he says, I am a mystery to myself. For, for I want to do what is right, but end up doing what, more, what my moral instincts are actually condemning. And if my behavior is not in line with my desire, my conscience still confirms the excellence of the law. And now I realize there's no longer my true self doing it, but the unwelcome intruder. Everyone say the unwelcome intruder. And now I realize there's no longer my true self doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin in my humanity. For I know that nothing good lives within the flesh of my fallen humanity, and the longings to do what is right are within me, but the willpower is not enough to accomplish it. My lofty desires to do what is good are dashed when I do the things that I want to avoid. 
So if my behavior contradicts my desires to do good, I must conclude that it is not my true identity doing it, but it is that unwelcome intruder of sin hindering me from being who I really am. Oh, I love that so much. He, he's saying, man, if, if I keep doing this and doing it and doing it, you know what? I, I am probably allowing an impersonator to run my life. It is an unwelcome intruder that's controlling my life and it's keeping me from being who I really am. And so he begins to say like sin and it's continually going back to sin is actually an identity crisis. And, uh, and he ends the chapter saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of sin? Then he goes, oh, glory be to Jesus, right? And he starts off with Romans 8, verse 1, for now there is no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And I, I, love, in, uh, I love the Passion Translation of that verse. It says, so now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. I specifically love that he goes, and now there are no more condemning voices that are actually standing there and accusing me and condemning me daily. Uh, you know, I, I love this because uh, you, you realize that condemnation, when you, when you hear it put this way, that condemnation is... Is, is not just yourself, but there's a host uh, or hordes of, of the demonic that are, are, are declaring accusation against you daily. That shame, if you were really tear the veil off of the, the feeling and the sense of shame, I bet you there are, there's a choir of demons that are just on repeat reminding you of your lack and your failures. And what does he say? But the cross of Jesus Christ cancels their voices. And now there is silence. There's no more accuser. Where You look around, where is your accuser now? Jesus has just written in the sand, all the demons are gone. And he's standing there with you saying, where's your accuser? This is the picture that's being played out for you right now. He's saying he has silenced the accuser and there's no more condemnation. You stand alone in life union with Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, I wanna, I'm going to break down chapter 8 in a few different passages. Uh, look at verse 3 with me. Um, it says, for, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Don't worry, I'm going to break all this down. For to, be, woo, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead, because of sin, but the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness, but the spirit of him who raises from the dead dwells inside of you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal beings through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's break this down. One of the causes of us living a life that is not transformed is because of shame and condemnation. 
Shame and condemnation is the belief that our lack disqualifies us from God's favor. Listen. It is the, it is the lie of the enemy to say your lack disqualifies you from becoming a partaker in the righteousness of Christ. Right? And many of us go, like, I believe everything you're saying about the cross has set me free from sin, da-da-da-da-da. But the very, if, if there is shame and condemnation in your life means there's been somewhere in your life you've given permission for a voice of the accuser to, to, uh, to be present in your life that is telling you that you are disqualified from becoming a partaker of the imparted righteousness of Christ for your life. Okay? And, and here's what happens, is when we allow condemnation to begin to control our behavior and our life and our approach to God, then what we're doing is, is we're actually alienating ourselves from the life of God, and we are continuing to live from the sinful flesh and not from the Spirit. Let me, uh, in Romans 8, 3 to 4, it says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the, what, what the enemy does is he goes down the law and goes, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you did this wrong, you failed on this, you failed on this, you failed on this. But, and if we allow that voice to, to control us and to begin to judge us by the requirements of the law, we will go, yep, 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 disqualified. But if we actually hear what God is saying, then we go, uh, you didn't do this, Jesus did, null and void. You didn't do this, Jesus did, null and void. You didn't do this, Jesus did, null and void. You see, everything the enemy could ever bring against you, Jesus fulfilled, and that means that there is not a single accusation that stands in a court of law against you. You have been declared innocent. The judge stands with a white stone and a black stone, and he places the white stone over your name and says, innocent. Your name is written, and they're going over all the works of your life. And the blood of Jesus comes and gets sprinkled over the works and everything's been cleansed and everything's been washed. You are innocent. Every voice of the accuser is gone. Every voice of the accuser is silence because you have been, been declared to be innocent. I like, I like this, this picture in Colossians chapter 2 which is a beautiful cross-reference to this moment. In Colossians chapter 2, 13, it says, "...and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him and forgiven you of all your trespasses." Listen to this. "...and he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us." And he's taken it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross and he disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You, you want to know the pictures being displayed? Okay, a, 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 a horde of the enemy has tried to set you up to have you condemned. And Jesus came along and he actually wiped away all the hand, handwriting of requirements against you. And he set you on your way. And he nailed it to the cross, right? But that's not where he ended. And then he took all of your accusers and he called them and says, now you're going to actually have to pay for your accusation against my beloved. Yeah. 
And here's the picture. He brings them to the courtyard and says, uh, hey, all nations of the earth, I want you to see this. And he takes the enemy, takes every principality, every power that's ever been assigned against your life to keep you from fulfilling the call of God in your life. He stands them in the center of the nations as every tribe, nation, and tongue watch, and he strips them bare naked. And he goes, where's your accuser now? They've been disarmed, and now shame has been brought upon their head. And not only is he set free, but now they are condemned and judged for their accusation against my beloved. And he leads a victory march through the nations of the earth. And this is what I love. When we go into cities like Salem and we go into, we, you know, we go into the nations of the earth and we're leading people to Jesus. When we go into our own town and we lead people to Jesus, do you know what we're doing? I've got a chain around Satan's neck and he's standing naked and I'm walking him through town going, is this your accuser? Come on. And I'm literally doing a marching parade of this man's, uh, of, of this fallen angel's uh, condemnation and judgment, and I'm setting captives free, left and right. Is this your accuser? Look at him. Where is he now? Are you hearing what I'm saying? And, and this is what he's saying. He says, we have canceled the handwriting requirement against you. We've made a public spectacle, and we've given the, the very one that accused you, now you have authority over him. Come on, somebody. Do you realize the devil only has the power that he's been given permission to have by us? And shame can get right in the driver's seat and keep you going back to where you came from because you believe you are disqualified. disqualified. The unwelcome intruder is getting you to believe that you are not someone who God says that you are. You're disqualified from the favor of God and he keeps bringing you back to where you came from. Sin I mean, shame and condemnation is probably the ultimate perpetrator of your sinful habits. Then he says this. He gets in and he goes, he, he says uh, in verse five, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The power of the gospel under transformation is not an external change, but an internal change. What I mean by that, it is not the removal. When you get saved, God doesn't just begin to take care of all of the external temptations, bad friends, bad choices, things that upset you. And he pads the room and goes, now see how easy it is? He doesn't take care of the external things. But what he does do is he puts his spirit inside of you where you never had access to the power to overcome the things outside of you. And now he's actually giving you the spirit that when you were to enter into that spirit of God and you begin to partner with the spirit of God, now you have a willpower to begin to make the powerful decisions to begin to eliminate the things externally around you that once caused you to continue to return back to your sin. It is access to the power you need to have the willpower to overcome. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Our sinful nature begins in our brokenness, our pain, our fear, our shame, and our insecurities. 
In response, we begin to learn external patterns of behavior to temporarily satisfy our pain. And those repeated behaviors become external cycles of behavior that we return to every time our pain is triggered. You hear what I'm saying? Sin is not just sin. It is a response. Like, do you, you realize that your sickness is not a fever or a cough or a sneeze? Those are responses to a virus, right? Your sin, sin is not the issue. It is the brokenness of our humanity that Jesus came to heal, right? And so, but what happens is, is that we create behaviors of response that are sinful in order to appease the pain and the fear that's going on inside of us that help us cope through time. And as we create these habits, it, I mean, it's hard to break a habit. And all, most sin is habitual. Self-protection, we lie, we gossip in order to protect ourselves, we break people down, we, we, we return to play um, other things of substances and things of sin because we are afraid and it helps me cope in this moment of pain. It hurts too much to go through what I'm going through, so I need to find something that makes me feel better. And oftentimes the things that make my flesh feel better are sinful, Right? And so those who live according to the flesh die, but those who, put, who, who live by the Spirit put to death the things of the flesh. The Spirit is internal. And so when we understand that the Spirit of God lives internal, then when we begin to go through pain, we now have access to a, to a counselor of truth that we can bring pain to and go, oh God, I want to go back to that thing right now that would help me. But Holy Spirit, would you show me where pain is and would you begin to speak truth to it? is when the spirit of truth comes, right? The spirit of truth will set you free. Uh, and so what we understand is that the spirit of God is dwelling inside of there for you to, to bring revelation and understanding in response to pain that once brought activities of sin. So those who set their things on the mind of the spirit and begin to train their ways of thinking to begin to go back to the spirit of God and go, God, what are you doing right now? Whew, where's this pain coming from? What do you say about me? That man, this thing happened. I feel pain. I've been triggered in my pain. I feel insecure. I want to go out and I want to break someone down. I want to do this, that, and the other. But God, I need you right now to speak truth over me. And now the mind is not going to the flesh to appease the sinful nature, but now my mind is going to the spirit saying, bring revelation in truth to heal pain and insecurity inside of me. Right? And so he says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It means that when pain and brokenness are triggered, we put our minds on the spirit. We ask God for revelation, understanding of what's happening internally to me. The spirit is revelation, understanding, and the fruit of revelation, understanding is peace and life. Everything that you need to overcome is in the spirit. Man, as, as even just Christians, even Christian leaders and people, I mean, we are obsessed with sin. We're obsessed with everything being clean and sterile all around. We're like, don't talk about it. Just don't, just don't do it. You know, couples are like, hey, we're struggling with, with you know, sex before marriage. And parents are like, well, just don't do it. Well, that's not helpful. Oh, just don't, revelation, just don't do it. Thank you. It's just what I needed. 
But where is somebody saying, okay, well, where does that longing come from? Why are you feeling a struggle? Like you're having a hard time. Oh man, you're doing this maybe because you have a wound of leadership and, and, and you're afraid of hurting leadership and so you've been hiding your lives and, and now there's shame and condemnation that's keep drawing you deeper. And not, Oh, where does that pain come from with leadership? Let's go back to that thing and you get what I'm saying? Like you begin to ask the spirit, where is the root of this, this like need of the flesh coming from? And we can go into the spirit and the spirit will bring revelation and understanding that will bring peace and life to your life and actually begin to appease the real need inside of you, not just band-aid it. All right. Verse 12, I want to move on. Verse 12, are we okay? I may not get through all of this. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, this is a good part. You ready? We are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these ones are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of, again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Paul is now answering the, uh, the, the, this intruder of sin has been hindering me from being who I really am. Who are you really? You are a son of God. But let's talk about the language and the placement and what's been going on in front of this. Because what we have to understand is that your identity determines your posture in life, all right? Your identity determines your posture in life. When you're in charge, you lead, you instruct, right? When you are employed or when you are serving, you follow. You listen to instruction. When you are a father, you teach. But when you are a son, you learn, do you understand right now what I'm saying to you is that your identity in life will determine your posture before the Lord. If I am just a servant, then I am trying to appease my master. If I am employed, I am just trying to follow instructions. But if I am a son, I am learning to become a good steward and to become like my dad. And so what we have to understand is that fathers teach their sons in order to give them an inheritance. And when you're in charge, or I mean, I'm sorry, uh, and fathers teach sons in order to impart the knowledge and understanding to them that they need so that they can become good stewards. Must be a good show, Maggie. Maggie, you need to hear this. Don't get distracted. Get off Facebook, babe. He says that if we're living by the Spirit, then we are sons, meaning that we are posturing our life to learn and grow by way of revelation. Now, remember what he just said. He's saying if you live by the Spirit, you live, you, if, you, you know, if you live by the flesh, you die, but if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. 
If you live by the Spirit, you're going internal. You're accessing the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, give me revelation and understanding and teach me that I might grow and become transformed. And so that's the posture of a son. Father, I need to know what's going on. Teach me to be a good steward of this life that you've given me and all that you've placed inside of me. You see, there is security in a father and a son relationship because the sons do not need to prove that they have nothing to learn and hide their mistakes. But they bring their mistakes to the father for the purpose of revelation from the mistake. In our moments of mistakes and confusion and brokenness, we don't need to cry out to a judge, mercy, mercy. We get to cry out, Father, teach me. Listen to what I'm saying. This is very important to understand is that those who live by the Spirit are the sons of God because when they go to the Father, they're not saying, oh, oh, judge, have mercy. I made a mistake. They run to the Father and say, oh, Dad, Abba, Father, I... I, I made a mistake. You need to show me. What did I do wrong? What's going on inside of me? Teach me, Holy Spirit. Teach me what to do because I want to become a good steward because I know that you have an inheritance for me and I'm going to become, I'm going to take over the Father's business. So teach me so that I can become a good steward of what you've given to me and that actually your ceiling can become my floor and I can go further. Like Jesus said, you'll do even greater things than I. Why? Because I go to the Father and I send you the Holy Spirit to be with you. And so sons go, God, teach me. And they're not running around hiding from their dads because they have no fear, because there's security in the relationship. That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, and it says, uh, uh, for you do not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. And we cry out, Papa, Father, because we need to run to our dad and we get to run to the Lord. And what does this relationship look like? Does it look like me earning my father's love by performing perfectly for him? Or does it mean that I have, I have constant access to his heart? Success or failure, there's no fear because he's always willing to teach me. You just understand that, there's, that when we understand we're sons, then we understand that even if we do go through wildernesses, wildernesses are not punishment seasons where God is responding to your failures. Because you're a son, God doesn't distance himself because you didn't perform well. He's actually looking for you to draw near to his heart and bring your stuff to him because he's not ashamed of you. He's excited to show you your heart and to begin to work with you and transform you. He's a good father. The Spirit himself bears witness that, uh, in our spirit that we're the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we would also be glorified together. The gospel has changed you from a servant looking to earn your master's favor to a son who already has favors, now is growing into his inheritance. What is that inheritance? What is he talking about? Joint heirs with Christ. What are we growing into and why is God doing a work inside of you? Why is, does the Lord want to draw near to your hurt, near to your pain? Why does he want to transform you from the inside out? Because there's an inheritance that he longs to share with you. And what's the inheritance that he longs to share with you? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. 
For earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birthing pains together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves are groaning within ourselves eagerly for that adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. But what hope that is seen is not hope, for why does our one hope still for what he sees? What is the inheritance? Is that all creation is groaning and waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Because creation was subjected to futility and it's raging and it's in sin and it's in bondage and it's hurting and it's in pain and it's crying out and groaning, somebody set me free. And there's a bunch of sons and daughters who go, oh, we've been set free. All creation's groaning and waiting for the revealing of sons and daughters of God. Why? Because the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that all creation would get delivered into the same liberty as the sons and daughters of God. The inheritance that Jesus wants to share with you is the ministry of reconciliation. Is that you would now become an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a carrier of freedom, and the same freedom you've tasted and seen is now the freedom that you're delivering the nations of the earth to. The inheritance is that you've become a co-heir and a co-laborer with Jesus himself who all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, now go and make disciples. This is now being extended to you. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach the gospel, set captives free, cleanse the leper, go and do the work of an evangelist. Are you hearing it? Are you all right? In Revelation chapter five, there's this incredible prophetic imagery. Are we all right? Oh, I just hit my limit. Should we end? Should we end here? Are you sure? Uh, there's like two people are like, why is everyone saying no? <laughs> just um, okay. Just give me a couple seconds, all right? Um, in Revelation chapter five, there's this crazy prophetic picture. And John the Beloved is, is, um, is having a visitation and he looks and he sees an angel standing with a, with a scroll that has seven seals on it. And John knows because he's alive, he's been in Rome, he knows exactly what that legal document is. Those seals, those seven seals, there's only one document in Rome that had seven seals on it and it was a last will inheritance of somebody. And he knows that the law says this, the law says that that scroll, that seal, that inheritance cannot be opened until the person it's written to has died and the person, or the person that wrote it has died and the person it's written to is here right? So John looks at the scroll and says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals, right? Because he knows the law has to be fulfilled. And then the, the elder comes over and goes, don't worry. The lamb has been slain, which means that the one that wrote it is dead. The lamb has been slain. God himself has given his son. He has died. And the one that it is written to has overcome the line of the tribe of Judah, and he's here. The law is being fulfilled. The lamb is dead. The line of the tribe of Judah is present. We can open the scroll, and the angels gather everyone together, and they take the prayers of the saints, and they begin to sing a new song to the Lord. 
And as they begin to sing, they go, God, you are worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seven seals, for you have made us kings and priests, and we will rule and reign with our God over the nations of the earth. The song of the inheritance that's about to be cracked open is the song of you have overcome and we will rule and reign upon the earth. The very commissioning given to Jesus himself has been extended and you become a co-laborer with the inheritance that's being given to the line of the tribe of Judah. The call to rule and reign upon the nations of the earth who are growing and waiting for you. And then it says, right after this, it says, uh, it, it, all of a sudden the scrolls begin to get broken open, right? <laughs> Cracks open. And all of a sudden death goes over the nations of the earth. And boom, a scroll gets cracked open. And, and coronavirus <laughs> goes over the earth. And then a, a, a scroll gets cracked open. And bless you, Maggie. And then a, a scroll gets cracked open. And then wars break out. And then cosmic earthquakes and all this stuff goes out. And do you guys realize that the inheritance is not the seven seals? The seven seals reveal the inheritance. So the seven seals are not the inheritance, they are the groaning of the nations of the earth. Do you hear me? They are the groaning of the nations of the earth that reveal sons and daughters who are the co-laborers and co-heirs. Wars, rumors of wars, uh, uh, sickness and disease and disaster zones and, and plagues and all these different things are not our inheritance. They're the very thing that reveals sons and daughters of God. The inheritance is, is even in the midst of it, you will rule and reign upon the earth. That's the inheritance. The inheritance is, is no matter how votes go, you will rule and reign in the nations of the earth. No matter how things happen, you will rule and reign in the nations of the earth. No matter how anything happens of the nations of the earth, you will rule and reign in the nations of the earth. This is your inheritance. And it's for this inheritance that God is, has given you his spirit to go to the very mundane, everyday parts of your life and begin to highlight the broken patterns of insecurities and hurt and fear and pain and condemnation. And in those moments, we can stand and have access to a good father who's given us the Holy Spirit to counsel us and to lead us into truth and to speak to every lie and broken pattern in our heart and bring it to truth that God's righteousness and, and justification would fully have its way over these patterns in our life. And then we can bring them to the Lord and every single day we're in the school of the Spirit going back to the Lord and being transformed and changed because he has an inheritance to share with us. He has an inheritance and he's, uh, he, he'll do it, but he's not interested in sending just people that have not given themselves to listening to the Holy Spirit and not learning from him. There's a good chance that he's gonna keep us training and waiting and learning and, and, and getting corrected. And, but there's something about that when we learn in that place that God begins to unveil sons and daughters. Look at these guys are evidence of my unseen realm. These are, these are the faith ones, the ones that live by faith, that enter in by faith. These are the ones I'm sending to the nations of the earth and delivering cities and captives. Come on. This is the inheritance. And this is why sin is trying to get you to, to, uh, to, to know or to believe that you're not a son. You are a servant. Shame and condemnation is trying to get us to believe that we're not sons and daughters, that we're servants that we're trying to earn our way into the presence of the Lord and into righteousness. But he already calls you sons so that we can bring our stuff to him. He can teach us and transform us and then share an inheritance and send us. Amen? Come on, stand with me.